0: Okay, so I want to make a quick disclaimer before we start. Well, for the first disclaimer that I always make is that I'm going, to, I'm going to look at my phone, because I have my notes on my phone. But the second disclaimer is that while the content of this class is, as Dan put it in his email and I put it in the class title, it's a guarantee for certain things, uh, that should not be mistakenly understood as something that you get for free. Mm-hmm. Without work, without effort, people see guarantee. And they say, "Oh God, yeah, I have nothing to lose, right?" And you do indeed have nothing to lose, uh, because I do believe, and I'll make the I'll make the argument, and we'll see what we, you know, as we we will debate it as we usually do, uh, debate the merits of of the content. But it's very important. I think this is um, perhaps the uh, the one theme that that goes through all self help, self growth, musar. Uh, becoming a better person, having a better life, that one theme is always going to be that whatever investment you put into something, whatever effort, that is going to be the degree of the payout. And especially in matters of spiritual growth and personal growth, nothing is attained without work, without effort. And oftentimes you'll see that the degree of effort will match the degree of the outcome, of the output. So, if and, and the guarantee is the guarantee provided that the effort mm-hmm. is made. Uh, so that's my disclaimer. Well, one thing, <coughs> remember: the
1: effort is actually, doesn't always manifest itself immediately. It's a subtle thing a lot of the time. Well,
0: oftentimes the effort includes yes. the effort over a sustained period. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what I... Um, what I wanted to talk about, uh, I think that there is perhaps one area where in life where we seem to be collectively as a society be regressing in. You know, uh, we're, uh, as a society, as, or as a people, as a, as a, ra- uh, as a race, but as, a, as a, a mankind, we're trying to improve, we're trying to evolve, we're trying to become better. And in a lot of areas of life, we are better than we were 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. But I think that there is one area of life, particularly where we seem to be failing at alarming rates and rates unseen by previous generations, and that is the area of relationships. More specifically, the area of the most intimate relationships of our lives. I don't need to go through the statistics. Everyone knows that the rates of divorce, for example, the rates of, uh, 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 you know, even Couples that aren't divorced, they're separated, and we all know individually. Every single person here knows individually people that are close to them, if not then uh, themselves, or siblings, or family members, close friends, acquaintances that have gone through rocky relationships. Some of them have um, had wonderful relationships that went south. These things are very common. And you would think that maybe after, you know, what, thousands of years or millions of years or whatever you want to believe of how many years of of human history and experience, maybe there's something we can figure out. Like, why is this particular area so troubling, vexing, perplexing, and uh, mystifying that we just can't figure it out? Uh, So what I wanted to do is I wanted to examine what the Torah says about relationships, particularly love, the Torah doesn't say a lot. It says three, four, five sentences. But I think that if we were to examine them very critically, we'll notice certain themes and lessons that if uh, extrapolated will actually totally change our outlook uh, of uh, about relationships and love in particular. So the goal is today to examine what the Torah says about love and to build a certain framework to get definitions of love on one end, but also to learn how to acquire it and not lose it, how to have it and sustain it, nourish it, uh, develop it, deepen our relationships. So that's the goal. Who's on board? Everyone's on board? Yeah? Is that a good idea? Should we dig in? Let's dig in. Okay. So there's three times in the Torah that we are commanded to have love. Number one, Leviticus 19, a very famous verse. Why is it so famous? Because it was plagiarized by the religions. Thou shalt not take revenge, thou shalt not bear a grudge against members of your people. Thou shalt love your fellow as yourself. Now it doesn't say neighbor. Thou shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, we're told like it doesn't say neighbor. It says re'acha. The original Hebrew says Reafa means your fellow, your friend, your acquaintance, the people you encounter. You shall love them as yourself. Now remember, this document we're claiming is the word of God. Therefore, every word is precise. And therefore, we're going to have to, we have to examine it very, very critically. It says, thou shall love your fellow as yourself. What that means is very much, uh, it's very, very important. right? Because the Torah is telling us we have to love everyone, everyone we encounter. But how much do we have to love them? Or, what kind of love? What degree, is it what degree of love? Is it as ourselves, as much as I love myself? I love myself 100 units. I love everyone else 100 units. Or is it the same kind of love that I give to myself? So we'll see. But the point is, the Torah gives us a commandment. This is what everyone can agree. We have to love everyone that we encounter as ourselves. We'll see what that means in a second. The first time the Torah commands us to have love, in Leviticus, Leviticus is the third of the five books of the Torah, the books of the Torah are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Right now we're in the middle of Numbers. We read it the entire year. We read the entire Torah. Leviticus and one Leviticus 19, we find that very famous verse. Fast forward to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we are commanded once again to have love. This is also a very famous verse. It's the first verse of the Shema in Hebrew, in English, it means as follows, Thou shalt love Hashem your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your resources. Now, what this means, I, don't, uh, all your, I said all your hearts. Talmud says, you have two hearts, you have this. And I don't want really to get too, in, right, too involved in what it particularly means, but we have a commandment to love God. And as we know, as we, we've learned in previous classes, the idea of loving God... Uh, Is somewhat, or the idea of God himself, like getting definitions, is somewhat difficult, right? It's you know, it seems like it's much more difficult to love God, which we view as somewhat of a fuzzy concept. Uh, That seems even more difficult than loving your fellow. Well, your fellow, you could go out, you know, you could go out and hang out with them, you get to know them, right? It seems like it's a step up. It's another challenge for us uh, to fulfill. And lastly, the third time we are commanded to have love is in Durami, once again, chapter 10. Thou shalt love the convert, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. In Hebrew, the word for convert, anyone knows what the word for a convert is? Ger, very good. And the word ger is also uh, means a foreigner, someone who is an, who's an outsider. Uh, so if you read in the original Hebrew, it says, V'haftimisa ger, you should love the gear, the convert. gay rim because you, you were a ger as well. You were an outsider. You were a foreigner. Uh, so once again, we're we commended to not only love every individual, we are specifically told to love the convert. Because we ourselves were like the convert, we were outsiders in the land of Egypt. In the land of Egypt, we were. Uh, we experienced xenophobia. We were the immigrants. We were the ones who weren't used to the culture, weren't used, to, you know, didn't know our way around. We had a hard time with the language. Right? We we experienced the same thing that a Jew by choice would experience. They come to shul, they don't really know how it works, they don't understand, they you know they don't speak so much Yiddish, they don't know what. Uh, Um, They they don't know what Kenahara means, or uh, Tsaras or Nachas, or all these Yiddish terminologies that we're familiar with. And uh, they feel out of place, and we're given additional mitzvah to love the convert. Okay? So those are three times in the Torah we're commanded to have love, love every fellow, love our fellow as ourselves, love God, love the convert, because we ourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Now... The first thing I want to mention, or the first thing that we have, the first, the first takeaway, what's the takeaway? The first takeaway of these three commandments is that love and acquiring love has to be a repeatable process. It has to be, there has to be some sort of formula that you follow the steps, you follow the instructions, and you reach the said goal. Why is that? Otherwise, there cannot be a mitzvah commanding us to do it. The Almighty is very reasonable. The Almighty says, I'm going to give you instructions. The instructions you're going to follow. Commandments. Therefore, the Almighty is also telling you that it's possible to achieve that. Now, if it's not a repeatable process, how is it possible to achieve it? What if I don't like someone? What if I don't love someone? What if I don't have that emotion? I have the Torah could to tell us very, very reasonably... Um, thou shalt eat matzah on Passover, or have a mezuzah on your door, or study Torah. Those, these are things that you could just do. You follow the instructions. You get a mezuzah, you hang it up on the door, and you, and you fulfilled your commandment, right? Matzah. You wear titsis, wear tefillin, Shabbos, prayer, Israel. All the mitzvahs we have from the Torah, these are activities. These are actions. Actions are repeatable. Actions are formulaic. Something that we could reasonably be uh, expected to fulfill. Love is a certain emotion. Emotion that doesn't seem to be linked to logic or knowledge or activities. Therefore, how could the Torah command us to have this particular uh, emotion? Now, perhaps you may say, Rabbi, when the Torah says, thou shalt love your fellow as yourself, it's not telling you to have an emotion. No, that's not the intention at all. The intention is to do actions of love, to, 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 to treat them with love even though you don't like them. The old clenching your nose and smiling nonetheless. <laughs> I can't stand you, but I'll still smile at you. Perhaps that's what the Torah means. Love your fellow. It doesn't mean to love them. No, you don't have to love them. You don't have to love them. Hold your nose and smile. Act towards them with love. Well, now, that, that, that's a reasonable argument. Uh, but it's unlikely to be true. Why, how so? What does the Torah say? Love your fellow as yourself. You're supposed to love yourself, Well, we assume that you love yourself. Now, as a side note, we see that perhaps the Torah is also telling us that if we don't love ourselves we're incapable of loving others. The is telling you, you already love yourself. This is the baseline. Now love others as yourself. That's a very, a very interesting point. If you don't love yourself, you're incapable of loving others. But it's also telling us that just like you love yourself, you love others. You don't love yourself because it's a mitzvah to do so. Right. You don't say, oh, well, I was told to love myself. My dad said to me, you're a good guy. All right. You have it going for you. You have everything you need. Ah, and he told me that, so I love myself. It's not why you love yourself. You love yourself because you just have a certain emotion. Healthy people are, uh, have a certain emotion towards themselves of self-love. It's a normal, healthy, uh, emotional reality. And the Torah is telling you, love your fellow as yourself. Just like you love yourself, you don't love yourself because it's a mitzvah to do so. You have a certain emotional experience with uh, or emotional reality towards yourself. That's the same thing you have to give to others. Therefore, we have a problem. The Torah is commanding us to have a certain emotional response toward others and the Torah is also telling you that this is something that's achievable. This is something that's repeatable. This is something that you... Uh, every person you encounter, it's possible to have that. What the Torah is really telling us is that there is some sort of formula for love. There's something that you could do to love others. What might that be? And this information, I think, will unlock for us perhaps the greatest secret of all relationships. And I think we could safely argue that once we know how to achieve something, we'll also know how to perpetuate that same thing. Yeah. If you understand what developed the love to begin with, you'll also see that when that love is to seize, it's going to cease because that the cause sees as well. Rabbi,
2: is this? I'm having with this is like right now, what's going on with the Palestinians? And I don't understand how
0: that would apply. I well, I get this question every single time. Every single time. I, usually, I call it the Hitler question. Well, what about Hitler? Right? What about bad people? We're not talking about that. We're talking about decent people, the average person, um, the average person that you encounter in your community, in your professional life, in your personal life, the average person. That, that, that's what we're talking about. In fact, the Talmud makes a certain uh, exegesis, which is a fancy word of saying a certain way of deriving something, that it says uh, the word the Hebrew word reya is someone who's who's upstanding, morally upstanding person, decent people. That's what the Talmud says. The Talmud would uh, perhaps want to exclude people that are indecent from uh, from this uh, from this commandment. So yes, so you're you're correct. No, no, no. The, no, no. There's so two commandments. There's one in Leviticus and one in Deuteronomy.
1: But the, the commandment is that you
3: love the Ger.
0: Yes. So well, there's two commandments one to love every Re'ah, which is every fellow, and one of them to love, uh, to love, uh, to love uh, a Ger specifically. We're not talking about the Ger right now. We're talking about the general commandment to love every fellow. I follow you. Okay. Is there a question? No. Okay, okay sorry. Um, where were we? Okay, so, I'm sorry? We're going to get to the, the formula. We to the formula, okay. So now it's important, when the Torah tells us to do something, it's also going to tell us how to do it. It's also going to tell us how to do it. And the first thing that we want to know, uh, the first thing that we want to uh, establish is a certain working definition of what love is. Now, it's, this is something which is oftentimes... Uh, uh, people have their own definitions of love. I uh, was once in an institution called Aisha Torah. Torah Rabbi Weinberg, had this definition that he had of love. And he always said it. He said it a thousand times uh, a year. And he said as follows. Love is the emotional pleasure one experiences when he or she finds virtue in another human being and identifies that person with those virtues, with those values. And for years it bothered me I never asked him, of course, but years it bothered me, where is the source? Where do you get that? Where in the Torah is uh, this definition of love manifested? Like, where did he come up with that? The love is the certain pleasure that you get when you see someone else's value, when you see someone else's virtues, and you have to find the person with those virtues. Couldn't find a, uh, uh, a source for it until recently. And I found something fascinating. I found the very first time the Torah says the word love, which in Hebrew means ahava, the Hebrew word for it is ahava. What's the very first time in the Torah that it says the word love? I
3: think
4: you told us it's
0: with the Rachel and the well, with the Isaac and the well. Isaac and the well, I said it? No, know, maybe some of rabbis. Well, <laughs> it, is, it is with regards to Isaac.
4: Camels. Camels, not for it, but animals and the fact that what are the camels. And and she was loved and she was loved and I forgot the quote. I no someone said yeah. he said
0: he loved her. Yeah. And he loved her. Okay, so let, let, let's let's throw through this here. So that's I, I think I went through the, I don't know if I went did through the exact that, thing. I, I, I
3: remember.
0: Yeah, very good. Um so Gen, uh, Gen, uh, Genesis twenty four, there's the whole story of Isaac and uh well not really Isaac, it's talk about about Eliezer and Eliezer is the, uh, Abraham's servant or slave, uh, and he goes on a mission to find a spouse for Isaac. And he finds Rachel, and Rachel, and he says to, he says to her, would you, feed the, would you give me some of the drink? And she gives the camel the drink. Fast forward all the way to the end of the story, right? They're coming. It Rebecca. wasn't Rachel. I'm sorry, I apologize, uh, Re- Rebecca. Rebecca. Thank I, you. She
4: said, I said Rachel by mistake, but I Yes, thank you. you. and the family (laughs) yes
0: I apologize yes so uh, all the way to the end of the story Rebecca is brought back to Israel she falls off the camel and the very last line of the story reads as follows and Isaac brought her to the tent of Sarah his mother and he took Rebecca and he married her and he loved her and he was consoled over Sarah his mother this is the first time it says love in the Torah Isaac took Rebecca, he married her, and he loved her, and he was consoled over Sarah, his mother. And the question is, why, when we're describing the marriage and the budding love of Isaac and Rebecca, why does the verse mention Sarah twice? It talks about about Isaac's deceased mother twice. It's like, you know, it's like the mother-in-law who's a little bit too uh, invasive. (laughs) Right? Sarah died, okay, we know that. That was the beginning of that particular uh, Torah section. Uh, Isaac is now getting married. He brings her to the tent of Sarah, his mother. But he marries her. He loves her. And he was consoled after Sarah. He was finally finally had consolation for the death of, of Sarah. Why is it so important to bring in Sarah into this entire uh, conversation? That's absolutely right. I, I, mean, I, I did I did I mention this in this class? Maybe you did. I don't think and I, I, had I did.
4: From else and I, I don't think I did. <laughs> some other
0: place well, excellent. So so the so the uh, the, uh, the sages worked out and in Rashi the commentaries. They point out that Sarah, a woman of great piety, she was a prophetess. She was a prophetess that rivaled Abraham. You know, she was she was she rivaled Abraham. In fact, in many areas, <laughs> Abraham. Like decisions uh, in Genesis that Abraham had, and the Almighty says, "You listen to Sarah. Sarah has uh, greater insight. Everything that Sarah says, you listen to her." So Sarah was a fascinating character. Uh, she was a woman who, single-handedly, well, I guess single-handed, but together with her with her husband, they um, brought the majority of the people of their country to monotheism. This was the first monotheistic uh, individuals, um, Abraham and and Sarah, and they were not only uh, tremendous intellect of, uh, you know, and and be able to have creative thinking to develop the idea of monotheism in a sea of of paganism, they were also tremendous disseminators of this wonderful idea. Like, pretty much the reality that we live in today, where the majority of the world accepts a basic form of monotheism, that's due to Abraham and, and Sarah. And she was a prophetess. She was able to communicate with the Almighty, with God. And there were certain miracles that existed in Sarah's home. <clears throat> for example, uh, the example, the three examples brought. One of them is that when she would light candles on Friday night for Shabbat, those candles would not extinguish till the following Friday. She would bake challah. She would bake bread, and there was a tremendous blessing. She would bake a little bit of bread, and she'd have like a thousand loaves, you know, for all the people that came. Yeah. There was this. There was this. Uh, uh, the third, the third miracle was that there was this uh, ever-present cloud above her tent. There's like a certain cloud which, as we see later on in, in Exodus, is demonstrative of the Shekhinah, of a certain uh, divine presence. That was the miracles that Sarah had with her. Sarah dies. What happens to the miracles? They go with her. So the sages explain that this verse in Genesis, what it's telling us is that Abraham—I'm sorry, Isaac brought Rebekah to the tent of Sarah. She moves into the tent. What happens? The same miracles that that happened to Sarah happened to her as well. The dough has the certain blessing. The the cloud uh, once again uh, uh, comes back to the tent, and the Shabbos candles last for the entire week. What does Isaac recognize? Isaac recognizes that Rebecca is the equivalent in character to Sarah. And then he loves her. And then he's consoled after his mother. So in essence, what the Torah is really telling us here is not just that Isaac loved her because he loved her. He loved her for a reason. He loved her because she had character. She had qualities that were on the level of Sarah. That's what created that love. And I think for us, I think this validates our definition of love. Love is when you recognize someone else's qualities. Recognition of someone else's qualities, that's what's gonna bring the love. And we think about it, it, it kind of makes sense. Like, what makes people love each other? Well, they like each other. They see the qualities in other people, right? They, you know, they, they admire the, someone's personality, right? That is what, that is what creates the love. And it spells it out here. He brought it, or he brought, Isaac brought Rebecca into Sarah's tent. She lived up to the certain qualities that he was expecting in a spouse. He married her, he loved her. And he was consoled after Sarah. He now found the person that is uh, on the level or on the degree of character that he was looking for in a spouse. So I, I think that this is really the key to developing uh, um, this framework for what love is and also how to get it. You know, we're taught that uh, every person is a collection of good and bad character traits. And we know this. We all know with ourselves we have certain strengths. We have certain areas of, of character that we're very good at. And we have other areas that we know we need room on, you know, room to improve. Right? Room to improve, like on the report card rarely <laughs> outstanding in the hallway uh, so we all have that and every person that we encounter has a certain collection of positive and negative, I, I was a great story last week, I was in Canada uh, my family is now in Canada, I'm home alone uh, we drove uh, I mentioned last time uh, we, uh, we drove throughout the United States like this vast country this is an enormous country Like when you actually drive across it so we drove to New York. We spent uh, a couple days in New York with my parents. And we drove to, to Canada. And uh, that's where my in-laws are from. And my family's there. And I, I'm going to commute back and forth. So I was, in, uh, I was in shul in Canada with my sons. And my kids are um, my kids are pretty active, to say the least. So he's running all around. And he has his friends. And he has his what's going And there's the candy man in shul. He's giving out the candy. And for a few fleeting moments, he's actually next to me. By my bench, by my pew in school, and it happened to me that there's a little girl and a little boy, roughly the same age of my six-year-old son, who are sitting in the bench in front of us, and they each have these massive books, like these illustrated, like not comics, but like those books that are illustrated books, like with pictures. So my, you know, so my son is peering <coughs> over and looking at the girl in front of him uh, at at the pictures, and I and this all happened within 20 seconds, and I just happened to be. Uh, An observant Jew, so I noticed it. So, so he's looking over her shoulder, and she's whatever reading. He's looking at the pictures, whatever, and, and then she sees him. So, what does she do? She goes like this. She pivots herself, and she made sure that he can see it. And then, like she's like looking in her, you know, looking into the book, and then she looks him and make sure that he can not see, and whatever. And he ran away. He the whole thing, you know. And afterwards, I said to him, Akiva, "Did you notice what happened?" He says, "Yeah, he noticed." And to me, this was a wonderful insight. I know it sounds so, so brutal, but it was a wonderful insight as to the differences within children. You know, this child, you know, has, you know, she did something to make sure that someone else couldn't see. Like She has a certain aversion towards sharing. And that's not to be held against her. She didn't make that decision. She was created that way. This is her negative character. And this is something which is her life's mission should be to perfect. You know, I have, uh, you know, I have a six-year-old boy and a four-year-old boy, or five-year-old boy, six and change and five, and one of them loves to share, loves to be giving, loves to be, uh, you know, to to be benevolent, you know, is always willing to give up, you know, when, they, when the kids have silliest fights, like if you pour them a drink of oranges and one of them has a uh, a tenth of a millimeter more than the other one, they go crazy. Why does he have more? Why You know, why does she have more? Like... Um, you know, why did you have like uh, in, in north in the northeast there's the seven elevens that have the slurpees. So like they each want to have twelve, you know, t- the, a mix of all twelve flavors and why did he get twelve and I right? The kids uh, you know, are always too shelf the right. One of my sons is always willing to give in. And when I say that he loves to share, it's actually not true. He shears even though he doesn't love to do it. He shears and he starts trying. Which is bizarre. Like why would you do something? Because the Almighty granted him with a certain wonderful quality of giving, of of giving up, uh, of of being the one who's who you know who's able to, you know, just you know not make a big deal out of things, and to give to someone else, and to share when someone else wants to share, he's 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 very happy to do so. But he does it because he's programmed to do so, and he does it even though he's upset afterwards. Why did I do that? And my other son. I can share nothing. Not his book, not his toys. And if someone else is using his toys, he says, no, 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 now I want to use that toy. (laughs) Right? Uh, Suddenly, I haven't used it in six months. But if someone else is using it, now I decide I want to use it. And and then the kid goes to some other toy and says, no, 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 now I want that. These are certain qualities that we have in born. Every single individual, if you're human, most of us are, if you're human... (laughs) If you're human, by definition, you have a certain mix of good and negative character. That's true with with us ourselves and it's true with people we encounter. Now, every person you encounter, you have options. What are your options? Your options are, how are you going to view the person? How are you going to associate that person? How are you going to identify that person? What are you going to notice? Are you going to notice their positive qualities? And you'll love them the same way Isaac noticed the positive qualities of of Rebecca, and then he loved them? Or are you going to choose to notice the negative qualities of someone else, and then you won't love them? Therefore, when the Torah is telling us to love others, what it's really telling us is to develop a certain sensitivity of how we view other people. We have the options. What are we going to choose to notice in other people? Are we going to choose to look out, to scrutinize, to seek out the positive qualities of other people? Well, doing so will ensure that we will love them. Because everyone has something that's admirable. Everyone has something about themselves that we wish we had about ourselves. That's something that we can improve on, something that we can admire. We're told in the Mishnah, who is the wise one? He who learns from every person. What do you mean to learn from every? What if you are the smartest guy in the room? How do you learn from every person? Let's say you are indeed the smartest guy in the room. How do you learn from every person? So this, the commentaries point out at this point precisely. Every person that you encounter has a mix of good and, and bad qual- uh, character. You yourself also have a mix of good and bad character. There's for sure something... That, uh, that in every other person that you encounter, there's some area of, of character, of, 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 of behavior, that, you, that they are better than you. And therefore, you, the wise person, is someone who learns from every person they encounter. And hence, they use these people that they encounter, these relationships, as a way to perfect themselves. Hence, they're, they're really, they really become the wise person. Because instead of looking at someone else and saying, well, I'm better at them at this and that and the other... They say, well, they're better at me at this, that, and the other. Let me learn from them. So, we are presented with two options. And um, my uh, my grandfather's teacher once presented uh, this as a, you know, you meet someone and they have, let's say, a negative character and a positive character, right? So Oftentimes, we're very quick to dismiss people as, well, they have this uh, or that uh, negative quality, and therefore, you know, we just throw the entire thing out. So he once gave a certain imagery uh, of, imagine you have, like, a treasure chest that's, like, full of, like, diamonds. But it has, like, a rotted fruit in it. So it smells real bad. Right? But it's still, like, yes, there's something quite repulsive and repugnant about it. But still, you're going to throw the whole thing out? You're going to dismiss the whole thing? Of course not, because there's, so, there's so much value still to be, to be garnered from it. You're going to encounter people, and every person you're gonna encounter is going to have something which is equivalent of the uh, proverbial diamond, and something which is equivalent of the proverbial, proverbial rotting fruit. What are you going to do? you're going to throw the whole thing out, or you're going to say, no, yes, while I am not losing sight of the fact that the person has negative quality, I'm still going to admire and try to emulate uh, the positive things that they have about themselves. There's a um, fascinating uh, dialogue or a narrative brought down in the Talmud where a, uh, this rabbi was going on a little spazier as they say in Yiddish, a little tiyul, a little hiking trip with his students, And they're walking around and they chance upon a uh, stinking carcass of a dead animal. And all the students are saying, oh, how repugnant, how putrid, how disgusting, how smelly, right? Everyone's complaining. And what does the rabbi say? But look how white are its teeth. Look how white are its teeth. And the lesson being is that, yes, while it may be repugnant, there's still something that you should try to salvage, uh, you know, about, and there's something positive about everyone. And even if the treasure box, the aforementioned treasure box, is not 99% diamonds and one stinking apple, right? Let's say it's 99 stinking apples, but one diamond, would you still throw that out? Certainly not. Therefore, the lesson is the Torah is teaching us love every fellow. How do you love? What's the definition of love? Viewing the positive qualities of someone else. Noticing what they have. What you could learn from. Learn from every person. Everyone has something that they could teach you. Everyone has something that if you were to emulate you would become a better person yourself. Love your fellow. What does that mean? Developing the habit of asking the question, what does this person have that I could learn from? What does this person have that if I were to follow, I myself would become a better person? Where is the diamond in this person? And once you find the diamond, that's how you identify this person. Look at this person. Look how patient they are. Look how, uh, look how generous they are. Look how kind they are. Look how infrequently they get angry. Right? Everyone has something. There's a redeeming quality for everyone. This, once you find that redeeming quality, you identify the person with that redeeming quality, this becomes the kind person. Who doesn't love a kind person? Everyone loves a kind person. Who doesn't admire someone who is incredibly patient or very uh, very difficult to anger? Okay. Everyone has something. The lesson of love, thou shall love every fellow is thou shall seek out the positive qualities of every fellow and identify the person with those qualities. Hence, love indeed is quite repeatable. There is a formula to follow. And I think that the, the negative, and this I think would be a little more intuitive. The negative, what's the flip side of this? What's the worst possible? I, I know, know someone who is like this. There's the opposite of this, and the opposite of this is where someone only sees the negative in other people, and is always able to seek out the negative of someone else and to highlight that and that and to blow that up, and therefore everyone they meet is a miserable person. And why, what kind of relate? How what kind of relationships do you ha- what, what kind of relationships do you have when everyone you encounter is just angry or uh, or, or so you know. Fill in whatever negative character uh, is the one that you find. You seek that out, and that's how you label the person. Well, everyone is—you mi- you you can have no friends, you can have no love. And I think we—that uh, you know—that's that's the extreme of this. Uh, I say I, I know some. I know uh, I think at least one person who's very much like this. Uh, every person they encounter, they're able to even people that are almost completely good but they're able to just find whatever that one little thing which is not good and boom, they, they're successful and now they can never love that person again. Did you not
4: identify
0: that friend with that negative quality trait? Though, or... Yeah, what do you find positive? Ah, you? Uh, nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Uh, well, that's their negative quality. Um, you know,
2: another thing
0: Absolutely. I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's, that, that's Ed's that's point.
5: If a person's that negative and they're seeking out negative, then do they really love themselves because they see the negative within right. themselves?
0: Some people are remarkably... That's
5: exactly what I was thinking. I mean, so don't, or they can only acknowledge it in another review. Or that well...
0: Yeah, but I think there is this phenomenon like where people have what's called, I think, rose-colored glasses, where somehow everything they do, uh, they're able to find uh, righteousness in it. Other people are able to, you know, we judge ourselves by our intentions, but other people by the results. Well, you know, when I did this, yeah, it was pretty bad, but I, I had your intentions, you know? And I, I think that perhaps another way to see uh, the words as yourself, Right. Love your fellow as yourself would mean to perhaps give the same "quote unquote" immunity mm-hmm. or the same, uh, the, same the same standards that you give yourself. You know, we're willing to view ourselves by our intentions and other people by their um, and other people by their results, and that's not fair. You know, as yourself, give, give mm-hmm. other people you know this, the, you know the same credibility. This, this, the, you know, judge them as favorably as you judge yourself. So, it's interesting
2: you mention this because for about the last two years, there's a movement in organizations to accentuate your highest characters and don't worry about the negative character traits because the, I guess the philosophy and what the research is showing is when you change the positive character tra- or you get the positive character traits down and you understand that, a lot of the negative character traits start to resolve mm-hmm. themselves.
0: On, a, on the deeper level, absolutely. On a deeper level, what you'll actually find—this is a secret, I'm telling you it only of love you guys—what <laughs> you'll actually find, if you actually were to build a complete catalog of someone's yourselves or someone else's character, you'll notice that their best quality is going to mirror, in some degree, their worst quality. So in essence, they have the option. Their option really is, am I going to harness or latch on to my positive quality? And then as a result, that alone will fix the negative quality. Or am I going to embrace the negative quality and that will negate or or, overwhelm my positive quality? And this goes even a step further. uh, That we're perhaps... Even your second best quality will mirror your second worst quality, and so on and so forth, where it's like kind of a mirror, and it, your, your, your your options are really what side am I going to choose? Because once you choose that side, then the other one becomes irrelevant. But I, I think I think um, I want to make this as intuitive as possible. I think that we all in our relationships. We all have ups and downs in relationships. The definition of relationships is going to be bumps. There's going to be better times, worse times. And if you were to examine the good times and the bad times, the good times in your individual relationships are going to be the times where you view the person positively and you spend time thinking about their positive qualities. And where the relationship heads south is where you constantly view and harp on the negative things about someone else. Why do you always do X? Or why are you so X, right? Why do you, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And you, if you focus on that, that is going to erode the relationship. So in essence, there's a very strong link between what's going to develop a relationship, develop a love, and what's going to uh, make it perpetuate, make it go on. Sustain the love. And it's a very simple formula. Like, and the second you stop doing that, and you start viewing the negative, well, of course the love is gonna, is gonna stop as well. Now, people that have wonderful relationships that they suddenly fall out of love, well, what happened? Are you, is, this, is this not the same person that you married or you've developed this love? No, it is the same exact person. So what changed? What changed is your perspective. Originally, you were looking at the positive, well, then you had the love. You stop looking at the positive, you start dwelling on the negative, well, of course, the love ceases and the love ends. Voila, that's why, you know, boom, booyah. This is it. I think that love can take a history with
5: like a history of the person. Of course. Because then you, you continue and then you seek good qualities and you continue to seek change
0: and then you have a stronger relationship. Absolutely. It's it's very dynamic. It's not just something that you get or you just lose. It's you know, you get it because of this reality, and you unfortunately if someone is to lose it, it's because of this as well. So that's what that's what the Torah means when the Torah says, Love your fellow as yourself. What the Torah is really telling you is to develop this outlook, this perspective, this quality, this skill of seeking out the good in someone else, right? Looking for the positive of someone else, identify the person with those qualities and not dwelling on the negative of someone else. That's a formula to love everyone you encounter because everyone has something that you can learn. Love, you know, you who's the wise man? He will learn from everyone else. Mm-hmm. And it's all, you know, that's for the general population, but also for your most intimate relationships, the same rule applies. You know, Isaac began his relationship or his love with noticing the qualities of Rebecca, but it didn't stop there. He kept noticing them. And therefore, the relationship deepened. I, uh, there was a Rosh Hashiva in Israel by the name of Rabbi Chaim Shmuel Levitz, Great name, Shmuel Levitz, And he once quipped, and this is, this is shocking, but he once said, I can name you thousands of positive quality traits of my wife, can you imagine? Thousands, there's thousands of positive qualities that I've identified in my wife. Think about that. Think about what kind of relationship that that must have been. It's incredible because he he honed this skill. It's a certain skill that we are not typically uh, endowed with at birth. It's much easier for us to see the negative in someone else. When someone does something negative, it jumps out at you. We have to train ourselves to see the good in other people. But this, the the sky's the limit. There's there's really no limit to where this goes. Once you train yourself to have this outlook, this perspective, you see someone who says, I I know thousands. Thousands, not tens, thousands. It's incredible. And, and maybe it's possible that his wife was a woman of remarkable character. She probably was. But I think every, every person we encounter at least has a, a few hundred positive qualities. Okay. But it takes effort. It takes training. It takes skills to identify that. Those are the skills. Those are love-building skills and love-building exercises. Mm, Very interesting.
1: Yes, because he's a wife
0: of us a long time ago. You know, um, the relationship, I couldn't quite even think about that, but the relationship that Hashem has towards us, we're told in the Torah, is that we're like his children. Parents love their children. Why do parents love their children? You know, I think if you were to make a model of a person with um, zero... Or close to zero admirable skills. It would probably look like a child. You know, children are very selfish, very self-centered. All they care about is themselves. They don't really provide much towards society or to their parents. They're not really necessarily appreciative or grateful. Right. There's almost no redeeming qualities of children. <laughs> almost, right? If, if you were to just analyze it, uh, but somehow parents love their children like unconditionally or almost unconditionally. Why is that? The no. of you. <laughs> That's why. And and no, it's true that it was so yeah. But who, who thinks, who thinks the child is? Which person thinks that the child? Which person is most likely to think the child that, that that a child is cute? The parents. And the why? Because,
3: because
1: they're so there. They belong.
0: To well, yeah. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> but
4: What it's, is that really what
0: a parent is thinking? Like at three in the morning?
3: No.
0: Okay, I love myself. No, no. I'd rather no, shoot. No. I, I want to shoot someone, but it's—I yeah, haven't slept a full night in years. No, no, I know my wife tells me that she doesn't sleep for nights. I just trust her. No, is it—is is it, is it really so cerebral? So I, I, I agree one hundred percent. I think that it's because the Almighty, the Almighty knew that if parents treated their children uh, in the way they treat others, most kids would probably die of starvation. Because the parents say, "Wait a minute, this child is a obnoxious brat, all the care about himself, that wake me up middle of the night five times." Like if someone did that, you wouldn't you wouldn't feel positively towards them. You wouldn't go out of your way. But the Almighty implanted within parents a certain uh, emotion where they just see the good, and the child could scream, and they see they see wonderful qualities. The child could be a brat, and they just see a sweetie. You know, they see someone. They see the children's potential. They see the good. The parents just innately have this 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 feeling of love towards their children. That being said, I know of parents that have taught themselves not to love their children. I know. I, I this this does exist. If a parent has the perspective of only seeing the negative and not seeing the good, they could teach themselves to not love their child. But parents have a head start, where parents just uh, you know, as a default, see the positive in the child. I would say that you know, maybe we could say, well, we don't know what God's emotions is. Kind of a hard thing, or maybe even a you know. Uh, you know, oxymoronic thing because we didn't know that God, you know, doesn't have emotions by definition. Uh, but yes, I think God does see the Jewish people, uh, you know, in their potential, in their capacity of being a light to the nation, in their, you know, mission of being his ambassadors to the world. And, you know, the responsibilities that we have collectively accepted upon ourselves as, an, as a nation, that uh, I think we could... Say is that maybe the reason why God loves us? You know, we're the ones who are willing to, you know, to give up a little bit, uh, you know, for the sake of trying to do what's right and trying to teach the world about God. You know, being the moral guardians of the world. You know, uh, I think that that's that's very legitimate legitimate to say. Uh, but I also think. You know, that this reality that we have established is not, uh, is not relegated to individuals alone. You know, we said, thou shall love your fellow you as yourself. How do you love your fellow? What do you mean? How do you expect me to have a certain emotion? You can have this emotion. It's repeatable, right? Because there's a skill. The skill is seeing the good in other people. You see the good in other people, you love them. And what the Torah is demanding us is to develop the skill. You should love your fellow as yourself. How do you do that? Develop the skill as yourself. Learn to see the good in others the way you see the good in yourself. Thou shalt love Hashem your God. Love God with all your heart, with all your your, uh, soul, and with all your resources. Perhaps the same holds true for God. Perhaps, just like we are training ourselves to see the good in others, we can similarly train ourselves to see the good that Hashem does for us. And you know what? You really don't have to go very far. Right? You just think about what Hashem does for us as as humanity. But even us individually as you know, as, as, as you know, just as an individual person. What is Hashem doing for me right now? Well, he's causing me, he's giving me so much free oxygen. Right? Imagine if oxygen was scarce or water was scarce right, what would you pay for a glass of water if you had none right. imagine you know, what, would you, what would you give up your eyesight for is there anything in the world that you give up your eyesight for anyone right. any number of the world any uh, monetary, any material any physical thing that you would give up your eyesight for no way Would anyone do it for a billion dollars? Be in the Forbes list? But with a cane like that? Is there anyone that would give up their eyesight for a billion dollars? Anyone? Any volunteers? I
1: give it up for money, but I give it up to help somebody.
0: Okay, but let's talk about money for a second. That's a good point. Maybe, perhaps. But we each have gifts from God that are almost priceless. There's almost no amount. That we can assign, right? We, we uh, you know, does anyone have a cell phone, right? We've got to charge it every day, right? Maybe twice a day if you have an iPhone, right? And the Almighty gives us a heart that pumps without batteries, without tinkering, without maintenance for 90 years. You know, we each have, you know, who here is drinking a coffee? We have two, four, six, eight, nine coffees here on the table. If you did not have a liver, drinking a cup of coffee would kill you. You'd be dead. Right? The liver is one of the most complex organs. It's an organ that scientists have isolated more than 500 functions. It's self-regenerative, and it just works. It's the world's most advanced filtration system. Nothing that we can do can match the filtration system of, of the liver. And these are gifts we get from God for free. How come we don't love God? God. Because we're not trained to look at the positive that we have in our lives. We don't think about the fact that we have fingers that bend.
4: I may not be the Einstein, but I certainly can read if I
0: choose to. Absolutely, and the words that you said, not taking things for granted, uh, there is a school of thought, uh, this is a controversial topic, I'm going to share with you guys, but it's a controversial topic, but there is a school of thought that says that when you see people with handicaps or, God forbid, with uh, diseases, mm-hmm. I, I met someone this week in Shul, Friday night, he's out of town. I'd never seen him before. Say, hey, how you doing? You moved to town? He says, no, we're actually here for a convention. Convention? I'm like thinking maybe he's in the oil industry. I don't know, like what kind of convention? So he says, no, his wife has a certain genetic disease that, uh, very rare genetic disease where she has very high laxity in her her skin and her muscles and her bones that uh, she, you know, her skin tears very easily and her, she can't, like, walk for great distances, and her eyesight is, you know, diminishing, and it's, I'm like, whoa, I, I literally sat down next to the guy, and, he like, within three minutes of me sitting next to him, he's telling me this whole story. Like, she can't walk for a great distance, and she, you know, I'm like, whoa, you know, thank God that everything works with me, you know, and like you said, and there is the school of thought that says that the Almighty throws us a curveball, so to speak. And we don't know why he does this, but he throws it to help us realize what great gifts we have. Because we're used to taking things for granted. And you take things for granted, you're not going to appreciate them. Absolutely. Uh, there was this um, Hasidic Rebbe. I heard the story when I was in LA for I was in LA for a weekend. Someone told me that there was this Hasidic Rebbe who uh, some guy came to him and gave him a donation to his institutions, whatever. And he says to him, uh, "Can I have a blessing?" It's traditionally you go, you go to the Hasidic Rebbe, ask him for a blessing. So he says to him, I'll "Give you a blessing. You should have a lot of tzaras. A, a lot of tzaras. What, you know, what does tzaras you know? means, huh?" difficulties I'm like what so he goes over to the guy and he says to him i, I don't get it i gave a very nice donation and the Rebbe told me i have a lot of tsaras. he says no no you don't understand what the Rebbe's telling you you should be healthy because if you're not healthy god forbid if you're not healthy you have only one tsar. there's only one thing that's occupying your mind but healthy people you know there's lots of areas they have financial difficulties this difficulty and that difficult that's a very healthy way of living and what the Rebbe is really telling you you should be healthy yeah, a lot of tzaras, and it's really true. Like, if someone, God forbid, God forbid, has in their family, uh, you know, or themselves, God forbid, a certain health problem, that's the only thing that that dominates their life. And it's important for us when we're healthy to appreciate it. And if we appreciate it, we notice the good not only that other people have, but the good that happens to us. We'll love God. Think about it. How could you not love God? How could you not love? if he's given you so much. Right? Now, how do you actually do that? You, it's one thing, you have to train yourself to do it. Right, But it's, part, it's, it's very much in line with the, this new outlook that we're trying to develop. Noticing the good in others, noticing the good that you yourself get. The good that, the, you know, so to speak, the good of God. God is just so benevolent, so giving, for free. You know? How do you do that? Well, imagine life without it. We, I think I once gave this example of, um, I think I gave it to this group, I, I'm very cautious not to repeat content, but it's still such a great story, I'll say it again, I, unless, unless I didn't say it here, so there was this um, this rabbi scholar teacher by the name of Rabbi Vinter Miller, highly recommended author as well, and he was once, um, he lived in New York City, and his grandson was once privy, he was once like he, was, he walked in and he walked into his grandfather's house and exactly like how it happened he sees his grandfather with his head in a bowl of water did I say the story? he's dunking the head in the water I'll just say for the new people um, he, and he's like dunking the head and he's like oh, look, and there's his watch it's like 20 seconds 30 seconds and he pulls his head out and puts it in again for 45 seconds and he's like what's going on is the man losing it so he stops him and says what's going on grandfather tell me Zadie what's going on Tells him that there was he was walking in the streets in New York City, and you know back in the day it was, there was lots of smog and pollution. And someone said to him, "I can't even breathe. Look at this! Look at this! Look at this air the pollution!" Like he says, "I don't want to lose my appreciation for the wonderful gift of oxygen that we have here." Mm-hmm. So he, what he did was he tried to imagine life without it. You know, you dunk your head into a bowl of water for forty-five seconds, you'll suddenly appreciate the smog-filled pollution. Uh, polluted air of New York City and it's a certain sensitivity that we can lose because the second you start complaining about things you're in essence looking at what you don't have and when you look at what you don't have you forget for a little bit what you do have and we're, we're so lucky and there's so many different areas like you know, there's this, you know that uh, uh, for, for life to exist there's just a very very small little sliver of, of temperature that life could, could exist on and right, the earth happens to be right in the sweet spot We're right in that sweet spot the, the sun is 93 oh, a little bit less than 92.6 million miles away very very far uh, and if it was just a little bit closer just a little bit further away life on this planet would not be possible you know? we have the wind system right? if not for wind right, uh, life in Kansas City would be impossible because you would never get any rain the rain would be only in the coastal areas Whoa! Who, how many times have we said thank God for wind? You know, think about it. Like just that one little thing that God creates this conveyor belt that's able to just move water and make uh, you know the planet habitable. But that's a wonderful gift. That you know, you know, we're not used to this attitude of looking out for the things that we're grateful for. You know, and it's something that we have to develop. I have a friend in Israel. This guy was remarkable. This guy took this particular still to the next level. He, he was Mr. Grateful. Every day, every day he would come up with some new thing that he's grateful for. And he, he had a rule. It was him and his wife they would do this every day, this exercise. Uh, every single day to come up with something that you're grateful for. Now the rule was that you can never repeat. So you constantly have to be on the lookout for things that you're grateful for. And this guy, when I was, it was 2009, 2009, 2010, when I was friendly with him, he was already up to six years. For six years, every day, him and his wife were talking up something that they're grateful for. And they would never repeat it. Six years! Think about that. Six years. Like 2,000 days. Every single day. come up something they're grateful for. Think about it. Think, think of what kind of life that is. Think, think about how happy he is. He now has... 2,000 things that he's grateful for. Look how much he has. He's focusing on what he has, what he, not what he doesn't have. He's the happiest guy. He was like always like beaming, always grateful, always thinking about what he has. On the other hand, you have those people who are just complaining about what they don't have, and they lose sight of what they have. And they're the most miserable people because they're just thinking about what they don't have. And you know what? They get what they want, they get the fancy car, the fancy house, the great job, the million dollars, whatever it may be. And now they're looking down the road. Why well, don't have, I still well I don't have two million dollars. So their whole life they're miserable. Right? They're, they're never content with what they have. They're never happy. The key to happiness is to be grateful for what you have already. The second you're grateful for what you have already, you'll notice that there's no end. There's no end to how much there is to be grateful. And there's no end to what kind of great life you have. And even if you seemingly, if we were to evaluate you, you know, lower, middle class or whatever, like, you know, you don't have that much, we still have so much. And there's still so much to be grateful for. Whoops. And, well, yeah, I'm saying, yeah. Um. And I look at these, two. Loving God, we're told, how do you love God? Think about what he does for you individually. Look at, look, look at the greatness and thatness of his creation, of his Torah. That's the key to loving God. But it's very much in line with this new philosophy that we're going to try to integrate into our lives uh, of looking out for the positive of other people, but also looking at the positive of what we have and what God gives to us. One thing I love about
1: you, Mm-hmm. Um, that is that there's a blessing for everything. And when I put that into my heart and began to live that, it just totally blessed me. You know, my, my
0: grandfather has an article where he talks about uh, the blessings that we mm-hmm. give. You know, we, if, if you learn all the Jewish blessings, there's blessings for almost everything. Like, every time you go use the facilities, there's a blessing for it. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime you consume anything, anytime you know, there's the morning blessings. You thank God for for giving us all these things. You thank God for vision, for clothing, for whatnot, and natural phenomenon. You know, there's a blessing when you when you see a rainbow. There's a special blessing you're supposed to say when you see a rainbow. Right. Blessings for thun, you know, thunder and lightning. And he says that the key is this particular point. It's trying to stop feeling entitled for everything that we have that we're given. And to start to stop taking for granted everything that we have, and this will—it's a paradigm shift in, in, in your life. It's a paradigm shift, and like I'm gonna get to this a little bit further. Uh, it's going to change your life. And and by the way, the guarantee for happiness is this. Just a spoiler alert. Uh, I wanted to expand the issue, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll rehash this point again. We're told. We're told in the Talmud. There's a great story in the Talmud. Uh, we know that there was uh, two schools of, of, of uh, uh, there were two schools of, of learning back uh, 2,100 years ago. The school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. We're familiar with this. There were two massive uh, yeshivas, like Talmudic institutions, Torah institutions. And there is a story brought down in the Talmud 31a of a gentile. And the Gentile walks over to Shammai. And Shammai, the Talmud tells us, was a really sharp guy. He was even more intelligent than Hillel. Even though whenever there's a debate, we always go with Hillel. And he goes over to Shammai and says, Shammai, I want you to teach me all of Torah while I'm standing on one leg. That was the story. So what does he say to him? He says, you're a Gentile. You're bothering me from studying Torah. You want to learn all of Torah, everything on one leg, all 63 words of the Mishnah, right? all 24 words of the, of the Jewish Bible, all the the depth and the insight and the breadth and the philosophy, everything on one leg? Get out of here, he tells him. So he walks down the block, goes over to Hillel, and he says, Hillel, I want you to teach me all Torah on one leg, and he says to him, sani um, which, uh, which means in English, that which you don't like, don't do to others. And the commentators all point out that it's a play in words of thou shall love your fellow as yourself. And then he concludes, this is the core. Everything else is commentary. Go Course learn. Study. Go study. That, that's the story. What it's really telling us is that there's something critical about this particular mitzvah Love everyone. That is really a microcosm of all of Torah. All of Torah is really this. Right. Within this is really contained the uh, the lesson of all of Torah. The lessons of all of Torah. Everything else is is aspects of this particular lesson. Uh, that's the first thing we say. We have another uh, Talmudic statement, perhaps less as famous. Uh, Rabbi Akiva says, Amar Rabbi Akiva Zeh Torah B'Torah which means, I'll translate it in English, this is a guiding principle of Torah. Love love your neighbor, love your fellow as yourself. So we're told several times that there's something special, something unique, something distinct about this particular mitzvah that really equals the entire Torah combined. This is all Torah one led This is a general principle in all of Torah. Uh, So I I think that, uh, just once again to rehash what we said, If you love, what does it mean to love everyone as yourself? It means to choose to see the good in other people. It means to develop a certain attitude. You see the good in others, you also see the good in yourself. You're always looking for the positive. It's With people you encounter, but also within. You're appreciative, you're grateful of all the gifts that you have. And this is an attitude change that has multiple ripple effects. I said it's the key to happiness. If you're grateful for what you have, if you recognize what you do have, not what you don't have, that is what makes someone happy We think that we, we, we um, erroneously link happiness to assets or uh, gifts that someone has. Yet you meet people that are very successful perhaps sometimes you meet people that are very successful but aren't that happy And you meet people that don't seem to have made it quote unquote but are very happy, what's the difference? The difference is is that we already have more than we could ever possibly achieve. Everyone around the room here told me that they wouldn't give up their eyesight for a billion dollars. So essentially everyone already has that billion dollars. If you're not happy with a billion dollars, then when you actually have the billion dollars, who says you are to be happy? You already have more than you could ever possibly achieve. We already have in our relationships in our body, we're told in the Bible, I can see God through my body. We have a network of pipes within ourselves that carry blood back and forth to our heart, a, a network more vast than all the roads in the United States and really all the world, roads in the world. If you were to take all your all your veins and arteries and line them end to end, you have a network more vast than the, than just lengthwise than the entire world streets. Think about how remarkable it is. And there's never a traffic jam, because if it's a traffic jam, you die. Like, think about what you have within yourself. If you're not appreciative of that, you will never be able to accomplish anything more than that, because you already have more than you could ever possibly achieve. So unless you're happy with what you have right now, you'll never be happy. Hence, the key to happiness is focusing on what you already have and appreciating that. It's a guaranteed method because it's dependent on this new attitude change. So we could say that this new um, perspective of noticing the good is the key to love because it's the definition of love. Okay? It's going to sustain your relationships. It's going to determine which which direction the relationships go. With the people you encounter, love everyone, and also obviously the people that you're most close with. It's the key to happiness. I'll also say another thing. It's the key to understanding why bad things happen. You know, We mentioned, we talked about earlier, you know, where, peop- where uh, this, there's this school of thought that argues that the reason why we see people, God forbid, that have um, health challenges is, is to try to teach us to not take it for granted. If everyone was perfectly healthy, well, then we just take it for granted. We feel entitled to it, and we wouldn't notice what kind of great gifts we have. When you see someone, God forbid, who has a challenge, you have to recognize, like it's an opportunity for you to recognize that it's not free. It's not, it's not something to take for granted. It's not guaranteed. And then you'll be a happy person. But also, it's, it's a key to understanding suffering. You know, there was, this, uh, there was this guy. There was this guy who... Um, had an office on uh, the 70th floor of the Empire State Building. And one day, or he was working late in the office, and he and he locked himself in. And he didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have any phones. He was just locked in. And he didn't know what to do. Like, how is he going to get out? So he walks over to the balcony looks all the way down, and he sees lots of people there. So he tries to call out, help, 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 and no one can hear him. So he says, you know what I'm going to do? He takes a roll of quarters. He had some money. He starts dropping the quarters. He looks down and he hopes that people will see the quarters just raining down from the sky. They'll look up and they'll notice him there. But everyone just sees quarters on the floor. Everyone puts them in the pocket. Keeps on walking. He says, oh, it's not enough money. He starts dropping singles, fives. He's dropping $20 bills. Everyone just picks up the money and walks away. He drops $100 bills. And people just pick up the money and walking you know what he goes over to the flower pot and takes a group of pebbles and throws them down and he's like hey what's up with that and he gets saved right the point is is that God gives us so much good so much good and he just wants us to notice him he wants us to relate to him he wants us to develop a relationship with him he's giving us giving us giving us giving us so much and we don't stop for a second we just scoop it up we just take it we don't stop for a second to thank him to recognize him and he says you know what they have to get their attention he throws a pebble and everyone says, Oh, where was God? Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? Where was God? That's what they, they, you know, and he says, Ah, at least I have your attention now. Yeah. And for us, you know, we want to avoid that. No one wants to get it doesn't feel good to get the pebble on the head. It doesn't feel good where God tries to wake us up from our slumber. But God has no choice. There's no choice. But we have a choice. Right? If we Take the dollar bills, proverbial dollar bills, that is, and real dollar bills. Take the goodness that God gives us and turn and look up and thank him. He doesn't need to throw the flower pot on us. He doesn't need to get our attention in other ways. He doesn't need to get the negative form of attention. If he gets the positive attention, right, that's a way to avoid suffering. We're told so many times in the Bible, like, if the <laughs> Jews had just been close to God, recognized God in, in good times, God wouldn't have to be in the bad. If there's anything, if there's any constant in, in history, and particularly in Jewish history, it's going to be that God, or is any reality in life that, uh, that it has to be true, is that we, uh, as humanity, but more specifically as Jews, are going to have to recognize God, have to engage with him. But, but there's always a good way and a bad way. The good way is where God gives us, thought, gives us so much, and we're thankful, we're appreciative. And not only is that good for us with regards to a way to avoid the retribution or avoid the bad times, it's also a very happy way to live. Uh, because if you focus on the good and you, you're you appreciative, you're a happier person. But additionally, it's a way to avoid those downswings, which any student of Jewish history knows that inevitably, when the Jews take too much of a break of just, you know, Forgetting about God in the good times, there's always a downward swing, and there's always the really harsh uh, backlash, and that always reawakens uh, Jews. And they say, obviously in the negative, it's a bad way to reawaken the, the faith by saying, "Where was God? Where is God? Why did God do this? Why did God do that?" But it, the reality was achieved. We're going to engage with God. It's going to happen. Is it going to happen because we're, God's just giving us, and we're so thankful? We have a very positive relationship, or it's going to happen because we're a very negative relationship because God punishes us, and God does things to us which we say, "How could God do that?" But we're reawakened to our faith in a very in a very negative way. It's something we want to avoid. How do you avoid it? By being appreciative during the good times, not losing sight of it. And this is you you read you read the, the Shema. The, I, the, I, we can't even like the the list is endless of how many times the Torah the Torah warns us to not forget God when things are good. Right? If you listen to God, you can have we can have it all. We could have the spiritual, the physical, the material, the everything. We could have it all. But the second we keep God out of the equation, we forget about him at good times. It's not going to be long before the pebbles are coming, and the pebbles are coming. and we are going to remember God? It's not going to be in a positive light, but we will we will go back to. It's our choice.
2: So I, I like the idea of, of the list of the couple that you were talking about. But do you have any other
0: practical suggestions on a day-to-day basis as to how you can keep this sort of top of mind? Because, it, you know, it's very easy to walk out the door of the temple this afternoon after this fine lecture and just revert back to one's previous life and not, you know, it's, we're talking about, for many people, a sea change. Involved. So how, what, what practical suggestions do you have with respect to day-to-day interactions or relationships or things at work where one can keep this, you know, top of mind? So I, I mentioned this. I think I don't think you heard for my disclaimer at the beginning. <coughs> I said that what I'm going to be talking about today could change your life. It could be the key to happiness in relationship and in many, many areas, as, we, as we've seen, but it demands work. So you're absolutely correct. If you don't work on this, it's very nice in theory, and it's true in theory, and no one seems to be arguing with me. Everyone agrees that this, that these perspectives are correct. And I think everyone knows this also. Anyone that's had real relationships for a sustained period knows that the relationship is at its best when everyone's looking out for the positive, everyone's examining the positive, dwelling on the positive, seeking out the positive, and it's at its worst, I'll get to you in a second, when people are viewing the negative. Uh, but it's not going to happen uh, automatically it ha it's a characteristic that we have to develop we have to hone we have to constantly be focusing on it so uh, i think um, as a an stringer. exercise i'm sorry a <laughs> as and an ag- you say as finger an exercise fingers? i think that the the best way to do it uh is what uh my friend um what, what he what he advocated I, I think it's a you know I think that's the best way to do it. It's training yourself. It's a certain muscle you have to develop. And, you know, like with muscles, uh, it takes time to develop. Once you develop them, it's easier to maintain them, but you could lose them as well if you are negligent as well. It's harder to get it than it is to maintain it, but you could lose it. So I think a very good exercise would be uh, to be grateful, to... Um, you know, which is think about wonderful things that you have. Maybe write one of them down every day, but also with people that you encounter, to look out for the good. They're sister qualities. I mean They're very similar because it's a new it's a new outlook, looking for the good within your life and within what you were given, but looking for the good in other people as well. So I do think that they that they share a common root, but they have different manifestations. And I, I think that the how, well, how do you gain any skill? I think it's it, it's a skill that you have to you have to earn by practicing practicing and perfecting I I think if we were to take 40 days and for 40 days 40 is always a good number yeah 40 days change the habit if you take 40 days and say for 40 days I'm going to find things that I'm grateful for you know and some qualities of other people like a certain quality analyze people with the intent of seeking their good quality within them I think that's a nice way to start this and it's a recommended uh, method but you're 100 percent right, and this is this is true. I think it's if we're going to have practical benefit from from the from this lesson, it's going it's only going to be with work. And I mentioned this at the beginning. Right, we're painting here a world that's very positive, positive relationships, uh, positive relationships with other people, with our significant others, with God. A way to avoid God's wrath, a way to have happiness. Um, we'll see uh, uh, that uh, it's also a way for some. It's it's a very, it's a gateway. Positive characteristic because it's there's a ripple effect. Because if you are able to uh, change your outlook on, uh, on how you view other people, you will also notice, Whoa, whoa, this person has some remarkable quality, and the, uh, this will cause that other areas of your life you'll, you'll become better. Because the second you notice the good in other people, you'll try to, it'll be, it's in your mind. And when you see someone is remarkably kind, right, that revelation will change the way you view other people, but will also change the way you view yourself vis-a-vis your, uh, your degree of kindness. So when it's viewed as a microcosm of all of Torah, when we say that this is all of Torah on one leg, it's because really, what does the Torah want from us? It wants us to have positive relationships, with other people it wants right? it's a tool for living it's a tool for having the best life possible it wants us to develop a relationship with god right these that, that that's the quality but it also wants us to perfect ourselves and this is a gateway it's a starting point because the second i notice hey this person has uh, the quality of patience this one is 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 very grateful and this one is this this one is that it'll also impact you in a wide area of your life because the second it's in your head, when something is bouncing around your brain, you're more likely to be sensitive towards it. And therefore, you'll improve other areas of life as well. So yes, this is kind of a key to everything. And we could safely say it's a microcosm of all Torah. Torah wants us to have a better life and become perfect people. Voila. Do follow this. Everything else is commentary. Everything else is an outgrowth of this particular quality. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a very practical response. And what's, uh, what's the very first words that the kids are supposed to say? We're really not supposed to say as well when they wake up. Moda ani Right? The very first word. What does moda mean? Thankful. right? It's so crucial. And like you said, it's a very, very, um, if you're able to integrate this into your life in a way that you're not going to forget it, it's it's going to have a tremendous uh, positive effect. It's, it's
5: easy, though, to slip and not do it. Of course. Yeah. Get out. but it, however that y'all see, because I, I know it works really good with me, and I'm still working on it, but um, but that's how I have found But You know your individual self, so you know what days, maybe, or the time during the day that you just kind of take a break that you can reflect on
2: things. So. I do the same thing. I do it in the morning, and I do it at night, and I, I have a brother-in-law I really have issues with.
0: But <laughs> Tell us more. Uh, About okay,
2: yeah, what I do is I, I So I can be thankful in the morning that God's going to protect, and I name them off all during the day, mm-hmm. and in the evening, thank you for protecting them this day. And just if, if I can at least do that much, <laughs> it helps <does laughs> to kind of bridge the <clears throat> anger, resentment, or whatever else I might be feeling about somebody, because regardless, <clears throat> I still don't want anybody to be mm-hmm. hurt. But when you get in that thankful mode, in your are right, some morning you wake up and you're late for work or something, you just you and you're like, oh, I got to stop, even if it's in the shower. you think finally it does become better
0: of a habit I I think that um, I'm hesitant to to say okay fine everyone here raise your hand if you're willing to do 40 days I'm trying to be we could do that Mm -hmm. I think everyone here is mature enough to say if they really want this they develop whatever works for them that's what I would advocate is some sort of um, some sort of variant of the of, the, of that of that uh, of that model. I think it's a very successful model, but uh, you know that's you know this is what it is. You know, like the, in the words of Hill, this is everything else is commentary. You know, whatever, however else you do it, it's commentary. It's that's the this is the core. You integrate it into your life, you'll see you'll see the effects. I, I don't I, I don't want to. Do you have a quick question? Yes.
3: That
0: that. Yes, I'm doing that right now. I want yeah. to do that really quickly, so I don't uh, I don't want to. Overstem, welcome here. So the last thing we're told, the last thing we're told is you should love the convert because you yourself were a convert or not a convert, or an outsider in the land of Egypt. Now what's interesting is that a convert is not excluded from the original verse in Leviticus to love every fellow as yourself. So the Torah seems to say that even though you are already commanded to love the con, to, to love the convert, because he's included with everyone. The Torah specifically tells you to love him in an individual verse, and there is a debate. Does that mean that there's two mitzvahs to love the convert? One, love the convert. One, love, the f- love, love everyone. That's a debate. I think that there, uh, that that the the end of the verse is very illustrative of perhaps another method that we could use to love uh, people, and therefore another. Uh, building block that we could use in our structure, in our framework of how to accomplish this wonderful, um, this wonderful quality that's so important to us in our lives, yet so difficult for modern man, or modern uh, man, mean mankind, to uh, to perfect. The Torah tells us you should love that you should love your fellow, your, the convert, because you yourself were a convert what is the relevance of the fact that, that I was a convert or that I was an outsider in land of Egypt? I think perhaps the Torah has given you a very uh, keen insight as to another method of accomplishing love. How is that? If I don't love someone, <coughs> right, if I don't care for someone, if I don't think about what someone else is going through, well, I'm probably not, probably not going to love them. However, if I find a way... To figure out what someone else is going through, to empathize with them, to superimpose myself into someone else's life, to know what they're going through, if I invest my time, my emotional energy in thinking about that other person, what they're going through, I'm going to love them. We all had that experience of being the newcomer. First day in the new synagogue, we don't know anyone, first day in the job, first day in school. We've all experienced that awkward feeling of being the odd man out. The convert is someone who joins the community. He, he, he or she doesn't feel so comfortable, doesn't feel at home. You have to hearken back to the times that you felt like that yourself. You've all, We've all had that experience. That will teach us to empathize with other people who are going through that. Right When you... Feel a certain association with someone, right? You, you you identify with a person. I once went through that as well. That's a way to empathize with them, and that's a way to love them. So perhaps the Torah is telling us to love love the convert. Well, the Torah is telling us a method. How do you love the convert? Well, they're different. They're, they're they're out. They're outsiders. They're not. You know, they're they're a little bit different than, uh, than everyone else, right? They're newcomers. They're uh, you know they're they they're, they're they they don't know exactly how, to, how things work. Well. You yourself had that. If you're able to find within yourselves past experiences, times where you went through what other people are going through, but more specifically, you asked yourself, what's this person going through? Right? That is uh, empathy. If you think about what someone else is going through, if you try to imagine life in their shoes, uh, then, 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 you, then, then you'll love them. Just as an illustration, and with this I will conclude. So let me just ask you one question. Please. Yeah. Does someone religion matter at all? Should we love Jews more than non-Jews? Should we love Jews? well it's like we whether view the Jewish converts, people as a family. They're converts or not. We no, we do we view the Jewish people as a family. You know? I, I think that yeah, we have to we're, we're even commanded to give tzedakah, to give charity to non-Jews. So we have a certain. We have, of course, we have to have a positive relationship with with everyone, but the Jewish people. That's but that's your family. It's something else, you know. We're part of one home, you know. So the Talmud. be a to the
1: nations.
0: Well, too. that's true. That's true. It means we're part of a fraternity. There's something deeper that we have to have with our with our fellow Jews than with other people. Of course.
5: Mm-hmm. Okay. it's a tendency for humans to do that to love more than they do the outsider that's why he specifically commanded us to do
3: right. that yes that, that's, that's
0: right. for sure the simple way to understand it because right. there's you know, the, you're less likely to love the convert than right. love someone right for sure uh, but I, I think that there's perhaps a, a deeper lesson um, and I want to illustrate it by a verse in Exodus um, the verse is talking about a Jewish slave and how do you become a Jewish slave uh, the Torah says there's really two ways to become a slave. A Jewish person become a slave, uh, and one of them is where someone steals something and they don't have money to pay. So they have to like uh, it's like when you uh, go to the restaurant and you order something you don't have any money to pay so you have to scrub the dishes, right? So if someone steals something, they have to either they have to pay or they have to you know they have to work for them, uh, you know, till they're able to pay uh, whatever it is that they stole, uh, and. The Torah is talking about the particular laws about different kinds of different kinds of if there's if the the slave is married or not married could the uh, could the uh, master uh, you know uh, marry them off to a sla- to to a, to a female uh, counterpart and have babies that's the discussion either way the definition or the, the description the Torah gives of a single person of a single of an individual who is not married a bachelor. Is very uh, intriguing. Now, if, if I were to ask you, how would you define what, like, what description would you use to define someone who's single? You might say, well, they're untethered, they're free, they're um, uh, they don't have responsibilities. There's a lot of ways you would use to describe someone who's not married. Uh, what would you describe? Well, well they don't they don't uh, file taxes as married, file and filing jointly. Like, they, you know, you would come up with you know, ten or twenty different ways to describe someone who's a bachelor the way the Torah describes him is begapo. What is begapo? Beknath begadam. What does that mean? At the edge of his clothing. The Torah describes, I might have mentioned this uh, at a previous class. The Torah describes someone who's single as someone who comes with the edge of their clothing. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean, someone who comes at the edge of the clothing? So the commentators tell us, when someone is single, when someone has just themselves, when someone cares about themselves alone, they have no one else that they're sharing their life with, their life ends where their clothing ends. At the edge of their garment. That's where their life ends. However, when someone has other people they care for, it's sort of an expansion. It's not just me as an individual. Like, it's someone else. The, my identity as who I am includes others as well. That's what it means when someone loves someone else. And they, they care for them. They empathize for them. Yeah. In the Talmud, very interestingly, a great person is called a Gavra Rabba, which means literally, if you're translate it, a large person, which seems to be a very offensive way to call someone, right? Large person. But the re- the answer is because the greater, the, the definition of greatness in Judaism is who are you? Who do you encompass? Who do you empathize with? Who do you love? When you love someone, you feel for them. You invest in them. You empathize with them. When someone, they feel pain, it's as if you feel the pain the greater the person is, the more they encompass. It starts off with you as a baby, as, you know just you, the individual. And the hope is that you're going to break out of that bond of selfishness and to, to incorporate other people within yourself. And the greater person incorporates the entire Jewish people. Like Moses, Moses was, the Talmud says that Moses was equal to the Jewish people. But Moses, Jewish people, the same thing. What does that mean? Moses, the, 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 the consonant leader, is someone who cares for other people as much as he cares for himself. The entire Jewish people were equal to Moses. Why? Because any pain that any individual Jewish people felt, Moses felt it as well. Because he loved them so much. Because he cared for them so much. Uh, So I think that this is what the Torah is really telling us. You should love the convert. You have to care for them. How, How am I going to love them? I have to care for them. I have to invest in them. I have to empathize for them. I have to feel their pain. Feel what they're going through. I once myself also experienced that as well this tool is also a fundamental tool to achieving love. Right? Caring and empathizing. right? Imagining life in their shoes. What are they going through? What's someone else going through? Breaking out of a self-centered vision or perspective on life and trying to encompass other people in our sphere of importance. So, these tools of, uh, of, of yesteryear, these uh, verses of yesteryear, t- what does the Torah say about love? It says a verse in about Isaac. It has three commandments. But I think we extrapolate this and we see an entire world before us. When the Torah gives us instructions of, how, of, of love. The Torah gives us a commandment of love. It's also telling us how to do it. But we have to read between the lines. We have to understand what the Torah means when the Torah says love. Let's go to the first time the Torah describes love. It describes Isaac seeing wonderful qualities of Rebekah. Then he loves her. It's a certain perspective of looking out for the positive in someone else. Everyone has a collection of good and negative uh, character. Right? What you choose to identify the person with is going to determine what, whether you love them or not. And similarly, to continue loving someone means to continue having this perspective. You should love God. How do you love God? Look what God does for you. Right? This perspective of, of, of always looking out for the good that you have focusing on what you have and not what you don't have. It's going to give you happiness. It's going to give you tremendous pleasure. It's going to prevent you from from suffering. It's going to teach you also to uh, to perfect other areas of life. Hence, we could safely say it's a microcosm of all Torah. It's all Torah on one leg. It's a general principle in all Torah. And we're additionally endowed with a wonderful insight of how to have love um, from the convert. The convert is someone who is going through tremendous upheaval in their lives. And everyone you encounter is going through people. everyone has something that they're going through there isn't anyone in this room or crawling this planet that doesn't have something that they're going through the loving person is someone who's always trying to figure out what is someone else going through if I feel their pain, if I empathize with them I love them, I'm expanding myself it's no longer me and the edge of my garment I'm expanding myself to include others and the goal is to become the, the, the greatest person the largest person the epitome of that was Moses Moses encompassed the entire Jewish people <clears throat> so we have a uh, a path we have a method we have formulas we have repeatable processes that uh and now it's all up to us it's a guaranteed method it's a guaranteed formula it's it's it, the the guarantee provided that the uh work is uh is uh is invested in so uh best of luck on uh, this wonderful you know it's not easy Oh yeah. And I don't
4: know you unless I mean I know you from all the words of wisdom that you share with us. But I truly don't know you. I don't know your pain. I don't know your family. And if I wanted to get to know you, it would take another.
0: You would have to profit. invest.
4: Mm-hmm. I mean not. You would,
0: you would have, have to invest. And um, you know what? When you see a convert, you already know what they're going through. But when you see anyone, everyone's any, going through something. I mean, anybody, Absolutely, and that's, and that's the disclaimer. It's not easy. It takes time. It takes emotional energy. Sometimes you don't have the headspace. I have no headspace. I have so many things that I'm dealing with. I can't deal with someone else's. Everyone has so many, so many stuff to deal with. We're all either busy or not busy enough, or we have a, a million things going through in our lives.
4: And I think that's I a very good method. At the time, I wish i talked to him longer, him longer, worker I don't know. True. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel
0: that way. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree one hundred percent. And I, I think that uh, you know, if we if we invest, then this is important. This is worth this is worth our investment because the 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 uh, dividends are are remarkable.
1: One thing I just wanted to share from the Modayani, Ani first thing in the morning, um, you know, sometimes we think of prayer as uh, it has to be in the synagogue, it has to be wherever, wherever, you know, under our Talib, but, you know, I read, and I don't remember which rabbi said it, maybe you remember that prayer can be uh, upright kneeling, yeah. motionless dance.
0: <laughs> these days. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, so 100%. Wherever
1: you are, Hashem is there. And,
3: you
0: and it's thanking 100%. him for the past and begging him for the future.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: 100%.
3: Yeah. Okay.